Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at thegoldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Today, I have Eric Brotman, a certified financial planner and the CEO of BFG Financial Advisors and host of the Don't Retire, Graduate podcast and author of the Don't Retire, Graduate book and a regular contributor to Forbes.com. He and his team believe that financial literacy is the key to financial freedom, so they provide free and affordable educational resources and accessible financial planning with no asset minimums. Eric White, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Jonathan, great to be here. Awesome, so today, just for listeners, we're gonna cue this up. We're gonna be focusing a lot on legacy planning, succession planning, multi-generational financial planning that helps families reach financial independence. I know that's something you are passionate about. Uh, Yeah, I think multi-generational planning is, first of all, the most fun part and the most rewarding part of what we do. Uh, and secondly, a lot of times it's it's the most difficult part. It's the part that uh, that brings emotion into uh, into quantifiable equations. So uh, it's nice to be able to put them together. Yeah, you know, and it's an interesting time that we're talking right now because while this is a a steady theme for business owners and families, and while many families, I think, fail to plan, There are all these other things that are going on right now, such as we're experiencing inflation, like the fastest and most rapid inflation we've seen in years. Um, We're seeing, uh, we're still dealing with the effects of COVID and remote work and the changes in business and family dynamics. I mean, there's so much going on in the landscape right now. There is. I I will tell you that I think the last 18 months to two years during the pandemic and and all the things that have come out of this, uh, families, I think, spent less time on vacations and travel and entertainment, and they had a lot more time together and at home. Uh, and I think a lot of them actually did start to get their financial houses in order. I mean, we had a tremendous year in 2021, and I think it's because so many families said, you know, we're here. Why don't we get our, our T's crossed and our I's dotted and do the things that we could never do because we were we were too busy. And, and I really think this was a good time for that. And I think that continues. Well, yeah, it's really been an interesting time that people would spend more time reflecting because they're spending time at home. 
So let's talk about succession planning. Uh, I know you have a succession planning framework. Uh, I'm in the process of developing my own. What are the key elements to a, success, a good succession planning framework, do you think, Eric? Well, I, I think the two um, that are most important beyond everything else are, uh, are communication, um, at, which to me also includes transparency, um, and goal alignment. Um, because if you're honest with one another, whether you're the buyer, the seller, the, the merger, the new partner, the, the outgoing partner, what have you, if you're transparent and honest with yourself and with each other, if you share what's most important to you on any deal, um, and then if you plan well enough in advance so that there are no, there are no gotchas, there are no surprises, I think it works better. You know, in, in our industry, we see, we see family businesses all the time that are just making assumptions about what's going to happen. And if you don't plan well in advance, you wind up with fire drills. And whether it's a family business or a non-family business that are just a transaction, these should not happen quickly. They should happen in a very deliberate, thoughtful way. They should involve all the stakeholders. And that means not only the, the principals or the parties involved, but also the employees, maybe a, a client advisory board or some other group of, of stakeholders that um, are going to have an impact depending on what industry you're in. I mean, it's one thing if it's a family farm and another thing if it's an accounting practice, they're going to be different. But the one thing that's common is employees want to know what's going to happen to us. Are we okay? Do we have jobs? What is the new structure? Um, and if you communicate those things in advance um, and then allow for transparent and honorable negotiation, you can come up with a win-win for everyone. Okay. Well, I think some people would have issue with what you just said because they would say, look, um, in a family business, it's probably more transparent and more obvious or more assumed mm -hmm. that, you know, junior, the next generation is going to take over the helm. But in a non-family business, when there's a, um, an exiting partner, mm -hmm. um, there's less transparency, I would imagine. And there's concern that if we talk about it now, um, it, if we talk about the fact that I'm going to sell the business and that's my exit plan, then people are going to be jumping ships, you know, ship like, like rats off a boat. Well, if, if you handle it just that way and you say, yes, I'm planning to sell the business and you don't provide any more detail or color or, or, um, or information, I think you're absolutely right. It'll make people nervous and they'll start looking for the exits. Uh, I do think to say that you have a five-year plan. You know, this isn't, I'm going to, I'm going to sell the place in three months. Good luck, everyone. This is over the next five years. I'm, I'm identifying the successors, the management team, the folks who are going to run this. I'm going to be around as whether I'm emeritus or whether I'm chairman or whether there's a one or two year uh, earnout or other type of thing so that there is a gradual transition. I mean, I've been both a buyer and a seller um, of these kinds of, uh, of organizations and I've seen them go incredibly well just by virtue of the fact that there is transparency. So I agree with you. There tends to be a little bit close to the vest uh, mentality, especially in a non-family business. Mm -hmm. You don't have to quantify this for people, though. You don't have to tell employees, this is what I'm selling, and this is what I'm selling it for, and this is what it's worth. But to be able to say, um, one of my priorities as a business owner, as the majority owner of the company, is it's important to me that the company continues without me successfully and as much as possible without a hitch. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that everybody's okay in this transition. I think you wind up with, with some buy-in. There's also, uh, you know, anecdotally, I believe, if, if employees have something to gain by being there at the time of the transaction, 
they're far more likely to stick it out. Even if six months later, they decide to jump ship during the transition, if they have either some skin in the game or some, um, some potential to share in a transaction, they're not going anyplace. I mean, yeah. at that point, at that point, you've, you've basically ensured um, to, the, to the greatest extent you can, you've ensured that you've got buy-in from the team, you've heard from stakeholders, you know what's important, and, uh, and you have a much better chance of not only maintaining your client relationships, but also your employee relationships just by doing it in advance and being, being open. So let's imagine it's five years out and you're mm-hmm. thinking, I need to be selling this business or exiting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and maybe that's one scenario. Maybe it's scenario two is uh, I'm going to transfer it over to my son or sons. And uh, what do you need to start thinking about? And uh, like, what are the steps over those five years? If you could lay some of that out for us. Well, I, I think it's important to understand who the successors are and how this is going to happen. Uh, I'm, I'm generally not a believer that you give equity away. Mm-hmm. I think equity is always sold. Um, and even in a family business situation, I think equity is, is sold because in the absence of that, um, you, you really run the risk that, um, that you can drive this, this company into the ground and that you wind up walking away from something you've dedicated your life to and you watch it erode, which isn't great. Um, so if you have an internal succession plan, and forget the family aspect of it for a second, you know, I have two other principals here at the firm, and they know that they're over the next X number of years acquiring shares from me. And then I'm and, and I am actively not looking to retire. In fact, you know, I never want to retire. I want to graduate, and that's another story. But mm-hmm. um, but but I actively want to continue to move some chips off the table. Um and there's a, an opportunity for not only current non-equity owners, but others to participate in that. And so there can be, there can be opportunities for um, certainly my two existing principals, the two partners I have, but also for others who want to participate. And so I am looking at a, a, an exit and it, it's not a full exit, but it's an exit as the majority shareholder. All of our employees know who the next CEO of our company is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I think our, our client advisory board's aware. Um, I think we've communicated it, not because I'm going to suddenly quit on Wednesday, but because this is a, a normal, natural, healthy transition. Um, we haven't set a timetable, though we do have a range. And ultimately, I want it to be successful. First of all, this is my baby. Like any other business owner who starts a company as an entrepreneur, it's my baby. I don't want to see it disappear or, mm-hmm. or dissolve. I want to see it successful. Um, I'd also like to spend the second half of my life, which I hope I, I just turned the corner. I turned 50. So I think I'm on the back nine, Jonathan, but, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, I would like the second half of my life to continue to be um, involved in some way with this organization, even if I'm not running it day to day. So I, I do think that's helpful. Now, my daughter has not expressed interest in uh, taking over the company for me yet. She's currently in sixth grade, and I think it's a little bit early. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but if if it is a business she decides to go into, and it's something that I'd like to to help transition, that will be a different conversation. But she certainly won't be alone. I'm not suddenly going to have uh, all of my stock go to my daughter. First of all, it's a tax nightmare. Second of all, it, it won't work. Um, I do think she could participate if that's important to her, but only if the other principals are comfortable with that. I mean, they have to be. Yeah. So let's break this thing down a little bit, because I find that I work with a lot of second generation 
leaders and companies, some of whom are really what I call disruptive successors. They're mm-hmm. driving the growth of the business. Um, dad, mom and dad, what have you, built a small business. Maybe it was doing a couple million dollars a year. It was a nice business. Um, the younger generation comes along. They're millennial. They're, they're driven by uh, freedom. They're driven by, which is the same thing, by the way, the boomer was driven by. But they're also driven to, to 2 to 10x that company. They've got a really much bigger growth mindset than the, uh, the older generation. And they're the ones maybe who are driving value in the business. Maybe they're taking it from two to $20 million. Why not gift equity in that instance where they've really earned it through their sweat, but they haven't bought it through you know, a transfer of stock? And where the boomer is using his or her lifetime exemption uh, to gift that stock. Are you opposed to that? or um... I am mostly opposed to that because I don't know I don't know where the estate and gift tax exclusions and, and, and unified credits are going to be. I don't know what's coming down the pike. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't think estate tax uh, legislation is going to be favorable to people of wealth in the near future. So some would say get out while the getting's good. Mm-hmm. But but I'm generally not one to want to gift anything unless I can find a way legally to gift it for less than market value, mm-hmm. a la minority discounts or family limited partnerships or other types of strategies. Sure. And I know we don't want to get into the into the the technical aspects of it as much as the as much as the um, the personal aspects of it. But there are strategies where that can work. I would rather see, I would rather see a situation where you have either two classes of shares an A share and a B share, or you have two, um, where you have two trigger events, one where the second generation comes in to management and one where the, the first G1 is officially gone because mm-hmm. they're two different things. I mm-hmm. think if, if you have a son or daughter or both who, who want to come in and take your company to two or three or five X, you should incent them to do that. Right. But but I wouldn't do it by giving them stock. Maybe you give them a stock option. Maybe you freeze the price on the shares at the value today. And if they triple the company, they wind up getting a deal because they have essentially an option on it at today's price. So they still benefit from their sweat equity, but you're not giving it away. I understand. I like that concept that you're freezing the price at a value today. You're letting them show you that they can grow at two to 10 X. I mean, talk is cheap, right? But Mm -hmm. if they show you and you're just along for the ride, then why not? It's not really like you're gifting it to them. I mean, you're using your lifetime gift tax exemption, but they've earned it. And, well, and, they, and I'm not even know. sure. I'm not even sure you're using that. I'm not sure it's a gift anymore. If you were to freeze this, th- there would mm-hmm. be some tax ramifications on the growth. Mm-hmm. But 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 because it's a purchase and because it's a purchase with a legitimate price at the time of the deal. Uh, I'm not certain that I'm not certain you have to treat any of that as a gift. And, and mm. I'm not a tax accountant, but right. I, w- I would like to see a way not to do that, not to treat it as a gift, but to treat it as an arm's length transaction that occurs with a with a trigger date that's down the road. And so that means there's going to be certainly there's going to be some built in capital gains at that point. There might be some kind of uh, you, you could certainly sell the stock at the point that you wanted to to have them come in as management, you could sell the stock and you could self-finance it. If you were so interested, self-finance it, make it interest only and forgive the interest each year as a modest gift. Hmm. So for example, 
if your daughter's buying a, a million dollars worth of EBITDA or whatever it is, and, and I'm thinking small businesses, if it's a hundred million dollars, that's no, not going to work. Forget it. Exactly. But if it's two, if, if it's one, two, three million dollars, um, you've got a, maybe you make the sale now and you self-finance the deal. And the interest on that right now is favorable for the buyer. And let's say the interest is at 4%. And that's $40,000 a year of interest. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're married and your daughter's married with the annual gift exclusions, you can mm-hmm. forgive the you can forgive the interest on it mm-hmm. and do that without filing uh, other than gift splitting. You don't have to pay any gift tax. Right. And then when the time comes where there's a capital event, let's say let's say your daughter buys it for a million dollars and turns it into something where her shares are now worth four million. That that three million in growth is hers. She only owes a million dollars. And she can either sell 25% of that stock to another buyer at that time and pay you in full, or she can start making principal payments. I mean, there are ways to do this strategically without creating a gift. Yeah. So I think where owners might get stuck is they don't really know who to turn to. I mean, you're a financial advisor and you're talking in depth as though, you know, you come up with architect a plan and say, take it to an attorney to write it up. But there are other situations where a person doesn't have any idea who to turn to, and he's turning either to a tax accountant that he may or may not have a relationship with, or a lawyer that he may or may not have a relationship with. And he's looking for leadership and guidance. And I think our job is to provide sort of that leadership and guidance and being the quarterback in this situation. I mean, is there a, is there a central player in this uh, this advisor circuit that someone should be turning to, or is it just depend upon who has the, you know, the most knowledge and experience? What's uh, well, it, it, great great question. And and let me first address the quarterback analogy. Mm-hmm. I would argue we're never the quarterback. We're the mm-hmm. offensive coordinators. Okay, I like the, that. The let client's me, the quarterback. We're right. the one talking in the earpiece saying, "Call this play for your huddle." Right, I agree. And, and I would say that the 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 folks doing business valuations and the lawyers and the accountants and all of those play that those that's your huddle. Correct. So if you, as the financial advisor, are able to be that offensive coordinator and are able to be that go to resource. You don't have to know all the answers. Mm-hmm. You just have to be an advocate for your client to make sure that whatever he or she's hearing from these other professionals, that they're working together and that it makes sense. Because, uh, you know, lawyers have a, a funny way sometimes of coming up with the most complicated solution you can you can think of. Um, tax accountants, it, it, you know, taxes are an art, not a science. If you ask 10 accountants, give them a, yeah. st- a stack of things, you're going to get 10 different solutions because there is no solution. It's a, it's an art. So I do think as the financial advisor, you can be the quarterback there, um, not the quarterback, the coordinator there working with your client and making sure that um, making sure that everybody's communicating, you know, the lawyer might say, look, there's seven ways we can draft this. Let's talk it through. And your client, the business owner who is spectacular as an entrepreneur and, and makes the best widgets in town is not necessarily hearing what that lawyer is saying. You know, it's like Charlie sure. Brown's yeah. teacher, wah, 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 wah. and we all, we all go through that in some aspect yeah. in life. Yes. I'm not disparaging them. Half the time I'm in this, you know, if I take my car into the shop and they say, you need this, this, and this, I'm going to nod and smile and try not to look silly. Right. Um, so there's a language we all speak. And so if you can help distill that down to something where your client can say, all right, this makes sense, but here are the questions I have or the concerns that I have. This is what I'm worried about. Um, then you become not only the trusted advisor, which you've always been, 
Um, but you can also be a, a very important contact in the deal. And you're, you're not drafting it and you're not doing the tax returns, but you have to understand them because your, your client most of the time won't. And you have to make sure that the other players on the team are up to doing this because sometimes you have a very weak player in a position. I, I've seen accountants that, that some of my clients have used that all they do is do the books and do the tax return. They don't provide any strategic counsel or advice. And I'm very often in the, in the position where I'm recommending that they get a new CPA uh, because they just don't have someone that is bringing real talent to the team. Have you seen that as well? Uh, well, I have. And, and, and of course, that's an awkward conversation because yeah. when, you, when you engage a, a, a client, whether it's for a business or for family, it, typically what I want to say is if you have great people on your team, we'll work with them. Um, and if you don't, we'll help you find great people. Exactly. Um, and, and there are situations where I'm going to go head to head with an accountant or an attorney or a real estate person or a mortgage broker, any, any other types of professionals. Um, and I, I try to do it very tactfully. And I try to say, look, I, I, I'm not disparaging anyone. Um, this is as much opinion as it is fact, but this is the way I would approach it. Maybe a second opinion makes sense. You're not saying hurry up and fire this accountant. You're saying, why don't we get a second opinion from another CPA who can take a look at this objectively without a 20-year friendship involved, you know, um, and let's see if they if they jive. If they're in concert with each other, we're in good shape. And if they're not, at least the two of them might be able to craft a solution together. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to the succession planning where we talked about communication and goal alignment. I agree with you. Those are the cornerstones of good succession planning. Um, I want to ask you in a moment about your role in succession mm -hmm. planning. My role is working with the incoming CEO, CFO, COO, leadership person um, to coach them up. It's leadership development. It's, you know, who do you need to be? What do you need to learn? Um, what are you accountable for? Uh, how do you manage the people below you? Um, you know, that's my role is basically behavioral coaching, helping them change to become the person that they need to be in that role. Um, what's the role that you play or, uh, and maybe is that the role that all financial advisors play, but what's the role that you play in, in the succession well, planning? It, it's not the same role. And in fact, it's, it's interesting that you're often on the side of the incoming G2. Mm -hmm. I'm usually on the side, at least initially of the outgoing G1. Right. Um, and so for me, I have to balance um, what the expectations are on a transaction um, because everyone thinks their business is worth more than potentially it is. In the same way, we all think our house is the nicest one on the block. Mm -hmm. um, you know, hey, wait, I did, I did the bathrooms differently and I have a bigger yard or whatever. You know, we all think that stuff. That's You're right. It's behavioral. Um, so normally what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help um, our client understand that the top dollar deal may or may not be the best deal. And that let's make sure if goals are aligned, does this allow the company to continue to thrive in perpetuity? Are you meeting the commitments that you've made to your employees, to your clients and to others? Um, and what's most important? If, if, if a client walks in and says, I want to sell this thing, I never want to set foot in the office again. I want to get as much money for it as I can. And I want to ride off into the sunset. That's different than... I've been representing these customers or clients or, or folks for 40 years, and I want to make sure they're okay, or I have key employees and I want to make sure they're taken care of in the deal. Some of that's personality. 
but usually someone's somewhere in between. They want to make uh, maybe not top dollar, but they want to get paid what what the company's worth while at the same mm-hmm. time not hurting anybody in the process. Yeah. So ideally, that's so I, I tend to be more on the G1 side. Sure. And and trying to make sure that they understand most G2s can't afford to do what the G1s want immediately, especially if it's internal. If it's external, if it's private equity, totally different. They can stroke a check. But if you're trying to sell a company to say four key employees, they're they're maybe not entrepreneurial. Maybe they don't have the same view of risk. Maybe um, maybe they need someone like you to come in and coach them on what those skills are going to be and what the financials are going to look like for them. Because usually they see a couple of commas and panic. And that's that's not abnormal. So as if, I mean, do you see yourself uh, playing the same role that a lot of other financial advisors play? Or do you see uh, you bring, I think, a unique set of skills? I, I think a lot of financial advisors are oftentimes recommending either insurance instruments or um, you know, they're looking at wealth planning and they're looking at uh, uh, wealth management. It sounds like you're involved in architecting uh, or, or, you know, like you said, offensive coordinator role in coming up with an archi- architectural plan for the succession. It also sounds like you're doing some coaching uh, with G1 and, the, and maybe the others. It, that you're absolutely right. And so much of it is relational. And that's not to suggest that we don't do those other things, mm-hmm. but the tactics are so much less important than the big picture. You know, once I hear, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Business owner, whatever you're looking to do, once I know what you're trying to accomplish, when you're trying to accomplish, and what maybe the top half a dozen priorities are, then we can figure out which tactics to use. But to come in all guns blazing with, I got a great insurance solution for your buy sell, <laughs> you know, that's that's um, that's not the approach that we want to take. That that's not to say that that's not a fine potential solution to some or part of the equation. Well, sadly, I think that's the approach that a lot of advisors probably do take, and I don't know if it's just a, a bias towards selling products, and and uh, and that's why or. Um, lack of a service first mentality, uh, or, or maybe it's just my lack of experience in, in working through deals like this. Well, I, sure. I, I, I think it's a combination. In some cases, you have to look at how an advisor is paid. If an advisor is paid based on, based on either a retainer or an hourly fee or a project-based fee, um, as opposed to being paid to, to a, a commission for a solution, you're going to get a different outcome potentially. You might even come up with the same tactic, mm-hmm. sure. but, you're, but it'll be a different way to get there. Um, you know, I try to be as as agnostic as I can be about solutions, despite the fact that no matter how many ways we try to skin this cat, there are conflicts of interest in our business. There just are. Um, you can't disclose them away, disclaim them away, or make them go away. They exist. So as long as I can be incredibly transparent and say, the, the, here, here are a couple of solutions, um, and I can say, we can implement these solutions for you, but we don't have to. You can implement these anywhere you want. If you'd like us to take care of them for you, we are paid to do it, but you can also take it down the street. If you have a brother-in-law who works with XYZ Financial and you want to do the business with him, that's fine. We'll coach you on what you need to get done, and we'll charge a fee for the relationship. Um, now, what tends to happen, Jonathan, frankly, is that in almost every case, folks say, just please take care of it for me. 
that doesn't mean they have to. And I, I think there's a difference in that approach that has been helpful. Um, you know, ultimately, I don't think products are the answer most of the time. Most of the time, it's a combination of strategies, um, advice, documents, sometimes some kind of financial vehicle. But um, a lot of financial advisors don't sell the types of products we're talking about. It could be a loan, uh, a loan. Um, uh, it, it could be a loan situation. It could be uh, other sources of capital. I mean, if we can find if we can find our clients sources of capital that are favorable, especially in a small business deal, mm-hmm. there we, we use three different kinds of lines of credit for a lot of our clients, um, and we don't sell them, represent them, or get paid on them one nickel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the three different ways to use your collateral, and this is really important for G twos because G twos don't often have right you know a, a war chest. But if you have, if you have a home, there's home equity. It's an option. If you have life insurance, permanent life insurance, there's a cash value line of credit. That's an option. Mm-hmm. You have a securities account. Um, there are securities backed lines of credit. Those are options, and I like them better than margin loans. I mean, historically, margin loans were all about borrowing money against your securities to buy more securities. Right. I can't think of a worse idea most of the time. Mm. Um, it, you know, it, it, I, the, the two X and three X strategies can work great or they can explode on you. So, um, th- these are not risky strategies. These are, um, ways to access your capital in the most cost-effective tax effective, easy, easy and affordable way to do it. And, um, usually they cost nothing. Th- th- this doesn't have to create some big transaction expense. It depends how big it is. Again, if it's a hundred million dollars, that's not going to work. If it's $2 million, it can work. Yeah. So I think uh, you and I each have a book. And I think as a product, that is oftentimes a product that I think I lead with, and maybe you lead with, because it sets the stage for education and maybe a mindset shift. Um, And so if there's any product that I want to get into their hands right away, it's like, hey, I think you should read this because I think then we can have like a really good conversation. You know the context. So um, my book is Disruptive Successor. Yours is Don't Retire, Graduate. Tell us a little bit about your book. What's in it? What should the readers expect to, to learn from, from reading it? The, the book is written almost like a college syllabus. It's broken into semesters and in years, and it's based on the years of your financial life. Mm. And so Freshman year is is everything from making big student loan decisions when you're still too young to have a Budweiser um, to to dealing with your first job and employee benefits and your first home and and potentially getting married and the impact of kids and sort of all these different things that impact us financially as we go. And life isn't linear. And so the book also isn't linear. You can pick and choose which which courses you want. Um, you know, as we move forward, it gets into wealth management, it gets into risk management and cash management and taxes. And, uh, and then we talk about estates and legacy and the things that are ultimately more important than money, which become very significant as you get older. I mean, it's funny when you're, when you're young, the need to make money is incredibly high, either because you're in your home buying or kid educating, or you're in these years where, where maybe you don't have an abundant mindset yet. Once you have an abundance, now it's about what, what do I do with this to make a difference so that it's, a, you know, he who dies with the most toys doesn't win. He still mm-hmm. dies. Mm-hmm. So if you don't play with those toys, you've done it wrong. So um, the, the book is really about changing the mindset of retirement. 
It's about becoming financially independent at truly any age. Um, and it's about not retreating and disappearing. I don't understand why people spend 45 years of their lives building a career, a vitae, a network, and then they quit and they disappear and they watch daytime TV and play golf and shuffleboard. It doesn't happen probably, does it? I mean, people do it and they don't live very long. No, they don't. And what I really like is one of my former guests and colleagues, uh, Jim Muehlhausen, wrote a book called Half Retire. Mm-hmm. And his concept is that, you know, especially in a professional services business where you may want to stick around, but I see it also in construction and um, other types of businesses, people want to still be valuable and still pr- bring knowledge to the organization. But they provide a much more reduced role. They've cut down to two days, maybe 10 hours a week, scattered out. They're still on the, they're out on the golf course. They're doing other things, but they're adding value to the business. And I think that's an interesting concept. Is your book a little bit about like, does don't retire, graduate? Does that half retire? Is there some similarities here? Definitely. It's, It's all about finding something that gets you excited about getting up in the morning. And it doesn't have to be for money, but it can be. Mm-hmm. It can be it can be consulting. It can be an entrepreneurial thing. It can be volunteerism. But if you, if you don't have a reason to get out of bed every morning, you will slowly stop doing it. Exactly. And it's just not healthy. People don't thrive um, in almost every culture in history. The elders have the biggest tents. The elders were the ones you went to when you had a really serious problem. In our country, in our society, elders are put out to pasture like they're no longer useful. Right. They get the smallest and, tents now. And I, if, if they have a tent at all, and I don't, underst- <laughs> I don't understand why, because quite frankly, that experience is priceless. It's priceless. Now, I didn't necessarily feel that way when I was 25 and thought I knew everything. Right. Um, and so in fairness, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, we have employees here, some of whom were born almost in 2000, which is shocking mm-hmm. in and of itself. And I have to sort of coach them a little bit on the perspective of what they bring to the table and how important it is because they're getting their education currently. I mean, I did my CFP in 1998. Mm-hmm. All of the quantifiable stuff that we had to know for that test mean nothing now. Nothing. And, and, and I understand continuing education, but continuing your education um, and continuing to grow and learn and do a master's program and do other things is so important. Because if you just get a license and you hang it and you don't do anything with it for 25 years, it's really not worth the paper it's printed on. And so these folks are getting, they're getting the book learning, but they don't have the, the, they, they don't have the, the scars, the battle scars. They haven't been through tough economic cycles. They haven't been through inflation. They're all seeing inflation for the first time. You know, they haven't seen maybe people retire. They maybe haven't lost loved ones. They haven't been married. They haven't been divorced. They haven't been parents. They haven't lost someone close to them. Some of them have. And and that doesn't mean you have to go through it in order to be good at dealing with it. Mm -hmm. But you have to live a little to understand um, the human nature and and the behavioral psychology and living through even just financially, living through Y2K living through um, and certainly 9-11 and the role that played on our economy and on our psyche, Um, the great financial crisis, you know, the credit crisis there when, when, when Merrill Lynch is within a a day or two of not existing, that's not in the textbook, you know? So while the the skills of young people are incredibly important, especially their ability to to manipulate data and to, and to build the spreadsheets and to use the computer and all this incredibly valuable, 
But you also have to know how to talk to people who are going through something that you can't fathom. And if you look like their grandkid, how, how seriously can they take your advice? Despite the fact you might be the smartest one in the room. So true. So true. So, so Eric, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your firm and what you guys do. Uh, are you fee-only financial planners? Are you wealth managers who do financial planning as a, as a part of the wealth management? Um, and I'm asking this maybe in a general way because people who are not used to dealing with financial advisors, don't trust the stock market because they've always had their money in the business, and they're meeting some guy or people that are like you, and they don't really know, like, should I just be dealing with a financial planner? Should I be dealing with a financial advisor who helps uh, develop a plan, um, doesn't get paid a fee, gets paid for the assets under management? I mean, there's a lot of choices, and they're un largely unfamiliar to people who have never been in the world of uh, stock investing, things like that. It's a great question. I'm going to give you a couple of answers because um, I, I think I think approaching this from different perspectives is important. First, I would say that if you've never worked with a financial advisor or if you've worked with one and you're not sure what else is out there, um, I have two resources to, to suggest. One is there's an entire chapter in Don't Retire, Graduate in the book about interviewing potential financial advisors, the kinds of questions to ask and Correct. what some of the answers mean. It doesn't mean one person's good or bad at what they do. It means you want to find the right relationship for you. And so it's it's a way to interview people to understand what does it mean when they say X, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, the second thing is we put out a white paper that's free and available to download at whatisfp.com, which describes what financial planning really is and arguably what it's not. It's a free download. It's a resource that you can that you can take a look at and your, 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 uh, your guests can take a look at and your listeners. Um, in terms of our firm, uh, we're an independent financial advisory firm. We do wealth management and financial planning. Um, we are not a fee-only firm by definition, though we do have some fee-only client relationships. So for those clients who want that relationship, we can do it. Um, I'm not a believer that one size fits all. And so I get real uncomfortable when I hear, well, I'm only going to do it this way or that way. I think there are reasons to consider different types of arrangements with different kinds of, of clients. We work with multi-generational households and families. Some are three and four generations. Um, I started my practice in 1994 and started this company in 2003. Um, we are managing $600 million or so for families uh, in 31 states. Uh, we don't, as you said in the open, we don't have an asset minimum. We charge a flat fee to engage us. There is no product whatsoever. If you want to engage us and get a plan, whether it's wealth management and you want us to be involved uh, as that offensive coordinator with all those other specialists, or whether you just want a basic financial plan, the fee is different, but it's flat, predictable, and it's published on our website. Mm, um, that's you know, unique. I, well, I, I, I just don't think there should be any mystery here. Um, you know, hire us for advice. If you decide you like what you hear and you want to engage us for other things, we're delighted. We're happy to handle some of your asset management or some of your insurance matters or some of your executive benefits or to be involved as a party to a transaction like this and, and to be simply an hourly advisor or consultant. But every, everybody's different. You know, we've represented hundreds of, of families at different stages in their lives. And for me, that's what makes it fun. You know, I, we don't do employee benefits. We don't do retirement plans. We don't do 401ks and so forth. 
I get no satisfaction from making the managing director of XYZ company happy. I get incredible satisfaction out of seeing grandma at, at her grandkids graduation. Like it, it, to me, I like the personal side of it. So we work with lots of business owners and we help them change their lives financially by not being overweighted in their own company stock when they're ready to retire and so forth. But we don't work in a, as a cog in a corporate wheel. The one thing we do uh, do that I, I think we do uniquely is we have a, a financial wellness program that we do run with businesses where the companies will hire us to do consults with all of their employees. And they'll pay us to meet with their employees. And we are not selling product. We're not, uh, we're not the 401k reps. We're not the employee benefit reps. But we will sit down and talk with them about whatever they'd like, whether it's should I refinance this mortgage or, uh, or, or what do I do with my student loan or you know I'm thinking about my first home or we're having triplets. What do we need to know? Or you know I'd like to retire in eight years. What in the world is it going to take for me to do that? And it's, it's, we, we're not employed by the company. We're hired by them. But it's confidential. So we just did, uh, uh, just this month, we did four webinars for a company that's got offices around the country. We had hundreds of people participate and over a hundred want to meet with us in the next three, four months. So we're doing on sites. We're, we're visiting these folks. They don't have financial advisors. And a lot of them think they can't afford financial advisors. And so we've tried to demystify the advice, but also we've tried to make it accessible. So uh, on our website, there are some free tools. We have something called bfguniversity.com where there are financial literacy courses. The first one, which is the most basic, is, is free. It's eight modules, and it's appropriate for your high school or college kids as much as for young adults or for somebody who wants a refresher. So that's bfguniversity.com. Um, you know, we, we also do sophisticated tax type work. So we have something at lowtaxbook.com that is uh, the four places that most Americans can put money where it's never taxed again in their lifetime, so long as it's used properly. And that's incredibly powerful and it's free, it's out there. Um, and then we have inexpensive resources, the books and the online courses and you know, Don't Retire Graduate has a workbook. If you go through that workbook, which is available on Amazon, you go through that workbook, you're gonna wind up with your own financial plan and it was incredibly inexpensive. So you know, we've tried to make it possible for just about anyone to get some financial information, some financial literacy, some, and then for, for folks who are high net worth, we have wealth management services. And that's, I tend to get involved on the estate planning side. I'm the one, I'm the accredited estate planner in the office. So when we have a client who's, um, who's having some, some senior issues, uh, you know, cognitive issues or health issues, or somebody passes away, I'm usually the one who's called because sadly I've been through that with so many people that I can help and we can help with uh, making sure that their estate administration is handled and making sure that they've got the right resources and making sure um, just along the way that good decisions are made. But um, that's why when you ask, are you a fee only planner or an asset manager? Or what? We, we can't be all things to all people. It's silly to try, but we can meet people where they are. You know, and and every family is totally different. That's great, Eric. This has been a great forty-five minutes spending time with you. You are a man of uh, tremendous wisdom and experience, uh, lots of compassion, and I really like what you're up to and and what you're about. So, Eric Brodman, BFG Financial Advisors, based in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, people can find you at any of those websites that you gave. Uh, 
They can find your book and your workbook, Don't Retire, Graduate on Amazon. And what's the best way to connect with you, Derek? I mean, the best way to find all of our resources is at brotmanmedia.com. We're all over social media. We're easy to find. You'll you'll be able to, to schedule a call with us right on that site. Um, and, you know, we, we've got a fabulous team and we would love to talk to folks. Great. Eric, thanks so much for spending this almost full hour with me. This is Jonathan Goldhill, another episode of Disruptive Successor. If you like this show, please give us a good rating on your Apple or Google or Spotify, whatever your listening app of preferences, and stay tuned for more episodes. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.